and welcome to the Disenfranchised Podcast, where that podcast all about those franchises of one, those films that fancy themselves full-fledged franchises before falling flat on their face after the first film. I am your host, Stephen Foxworthy, your favorite puny human, and joining me as always, the man you love to see angry, it's our, it's my co-host Brett Wright. Hey, Brett. Hello, Stephen. How's it going, buddy? How's it going, all right, man? How's it going with you? Uh, about the same, man. About the same. But you know what? Um, we're we're over the hundred hump. We are. We're we're on the other side. We are. So it's all downhill from here. No. Um, like we said last week, we've got some great episodes in store for you. Actually, I'm really excited about the rest of this month because Brett, we've turned this into a kind of semi theme month. The second half of this month is its own kind of miniature theme month. Uh, and we're calling it, I'm calling it anyway. I don't, we, we, I didn't workshop this with you earlier. I'm just, I've just made a decision. Uh, I'm calling it, I'm calling it Hulkamania is what I'm calling it. Uh, Hulkamania running wild on your brother. I mean, that works for me. We don't gotta okay. call it part of the theme month. It's just, you know, a two-parter. It's, it, I mean, but that's that's a, a semi-theme month. It's a half a theme month. So there you go. We it's, got too many theme months. I don't want to call it a theme month. I know, I know. Uh, it, it's a it's a it's a theme mini series. I don't know. I don't want to call it a two-parter. It's, it's fine. a two. It's a fucking two-parter, people. <laughs> this is why we rehearse. Damn it. Um, <laughs> it's a two-parter because She-Hulk is coming out next week. Actually came out yesterday. Yesterday. Holy crap. I'm off by a week. That, yeah, well. That's mildly embarrassing. Well, we did, we did push some things around. Um, sure. So we, we've, we've had to rearrange our schedule a little bit due to life happening. Sure. Because yeah. life uh, finds a way. Finds a way. Yeah. And, and uh, look, I usually let uh, like, f- like three or four weeks of a new Disney Plus show build up before I watch it. So that's true. Haven't really been paid super close attention to it after moon Knight, i let all the weeks pile up on ms marvel so i should probably watch that at some point miss marvel very good that's what i've heard i'm just brett i'm just so damn tired <laughs> just I mean, so I, damn I, tired I, I understand and we'll talk about some of that uh some of that malaise and some of that exhaustion here over the next couple of of weeks the next couple of episodes brett for the first part of our two-parter hulkamania series uh what are we covering uh, Steven, we're talking about the Hulk from 2003. Uh, point of order, Brett. It's not the Hulk. It's just Hulk. Drop the the. It's no cleaner. The in front of it? It's no, Hulk. it's Hulk. That's it, man. Drop the the. the it's cleaner. It's yes. More pretentious and more pretentious every time I hear about it. <laughs> yes. From 2003, we are covering Hulk, directed by Academy Award winner Ang Lee. Uh, with a story by uh, James Seamus and a script by Seamus, Michael France, and John Terman. And starring Eric Bana, Jennifer Connelly, disenfranchised favorite Jennifer Connelly, uh, Sam Elliott, Josh Lucas, and Nick Nolte, along with cameos from Lou Ferrigno and Stan the Man Lee. And a blink and you miss it spot by uh, Lost's own Daniel Day Kim for those of you who are Lost fans. But uh, what a cast, Brett. What a picture. Yeah, what a picture, all right. Hey, this is going to be one of those classic Stephen and Brett disagree on a movie episodes. Yeah, except that, I mean, like, for me, I don't really hate it. This is one of those that was just like, I don't really care. This is boring. 
Fair enough. Uh, whereas this, this is the epitome of it insists upon itself. <laughs> and I just no, thank you. Whereas uh, I remember, so let's let, I mean, we might as well get into it. So obviously, as Brett mentioned, She-Hulk is out this week. Um, we are actually recording this before the episode, the first episode drops. And Brett hasn't, will not have seen it anyway, because he's waiting till three or four episodes pile up before he, he gets into it. Um, but uh, because of that, we have decided that we're going to devote a couple weeks to some failed franchise starters featuring one of my favorite comic book superheroes. The Incredible Hulk, starting with his first foray into the motion picture scene, the feature film, because there were a few TV movies that were made in the 80s. Uh, we're not talking about those because that was a, its own little mini TV franchise. Uh, but we're starting with 2003's Hulk. Uh, and uh, Brett, what is your history with the, the the character Hulk, with the movie Hulk, with Ang Lee as a filmmaker, uh, a filmmaker we have yet to discuss and, and probably never will again on this podcast. But uh, by all means, Brett, share your, your thoughts and feelings on, on everything Hulk related. Uh, well, I, I mean, I didn't really grow up too much reading Hulk comics or anything. I did enjoy Hulk though, like his design, like mm -hmm. his uh, aesthetic and general overall thing he had going on. Um. I think uh, I, I'm pretty sure I remember my dad watching the old TV show. Mm -hmm. um, Used to run the reruns on the Sci-Fi Channel when I was growing up. Yeah, yeah, I remember watching some of those. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the, honestly probably that TV show was my first real introduction to Hulk. Mm -hmm. So I, um, yeah, I was in for a bit of a. Uh, bit of whiplash when I actually read the comics and realized the show has nothing to do with the comics at all. Nope, not uh, really. I mean, the character's only, name isn't even the same. Yeah, by by name only. Mm -hmm. This is what the TV show is. It's so, it's it's Hino Hulk in name only. Yes. Uh, so that's really. I mean, I I liked the comic book Hulk much more. Mm -hmm. Um, and. That's really, it's really it. Like he's not really in my top superheroes. Well, no, he's not. <laughs> I love, I love that you were going to try to rationalize that for me. That 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 does make me feel good. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, no, like I, I don't know. It's just like I really like him, but he's not like up there. Maybe sure. because there's so much. I feel like Hulk is all over. Sure. You've got the whole DID thing going on. So you have to like, you got like mm -hmm. World Breaker Hulk and regular Hulk and Mr. Fix-It Hulk. And like, so it's hard to keep track of. It's too much mental overhead for me. I um, mean, that makes sense. Yeah. It's like somebody like Moon Knight, much more straightforward. Uh, he's, you know, this, he has different personalities, but they're not like, not each one of those different personalities didn't get his own comic book line or own storyline or... I mean, they're they're broken up into eras, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's a fair it's a fair critique. It, people, people, you know, new writers take over a book. They've got new ideas and the duality of the Hulk, I would say, is the feature. Um, so you try to play around with that in as many different ways as you can, is, yeah, is I think what which, it comes down to. Which is cool. And mm -hmm. I, I'm into that, like, because, you know, I like Moon Knight and I, I like what Moon Knight did with D.I.D., um, I'm not sure if I like what Hulk does with the ID, but yeah, especially this movie. Um, but 
you know, it, it's cool. Um, as far as Ang Lee is concerned, though, to answer that question, mm-hmm. um, obviously, big Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon fan. Oh, that may be the least surprising thing you've said so far today. Yeah, I mean, that's not going to surprise anyone. Um, but that's that's honestly really it. Because, I mean, his other big one, Brokeback Mountain, I never saw. Um, and I, yeah, that's not really. Life you didn't Pi. see Life of Pi? I remember Life of Pi. Everybody talked about Life of Pi, but I never really cared to see it. Didn't really seem like something I'd be interested in watching. Fair enough. Um, so that's that's about really the only exposure I have um, with him as a director. So that's my Ang Lee history, as short as it is. And that's my uh, take on the Hulk. Right on. For better or for worse. It was a little rambly, but we got there. We did. We landed the plane, and that's all that matters. Doesn't matter how much turbulence we got on the way there. We we landed the plane. Um, for me, I mean, like I said, Hulk is one of my favorite comic book characters. I love any character that really... Um, plays with the nature of dual uh, of, of the dual identity of the of the duality of man um i'm a big dr jekyll and mr hyde fan um but for that reason the hulk has kind of always been one of my favorite characters because there is that that push and pull uh within the character um you've got this very meek mild-mannered individual who because of this accident is not able to, or, or finds himself now unable to express what he, what he feels emotionally without fear of how he'll overreact or fear of what he'll become. And so like, like, and, and this is something that I think that traditionally Marvel comics have done particularly well. You're then able to graft a lot of different meanings over the top of that. Um, whether it's something like trauma, which this movie dives into, or addiction. Uh, I mean, there are kind of all sorts of, of stories that you can tell and, and parallels you can draw between real, real world issues and real world afflictions. And this, this funny book story, like Sp- Spider-Man is a, is a great illusion for um, responsibility and growing up. Um, the X-Men are all about uh, bigotry and being a, and what it, what it feels like to be a minority. Um, so, I mean, Marvel Comics has traditionally done a very good job of kind of creating these characters that can that serve both A, as compelling superheroes, but also B, as compelling social commentary. Uh, and they were doing that long before DC was. I, I'm traditionally a DC boy, but I have to give the props to Marvel here because they they really were doing that before DC decided that that was something that they should broach. DC was always very classic and flashy and primary colors and Marvel came up and were a little more willing to push the envelope and a little more willing to do uh, some more progressive things in comics, which is cool. And I think the Hulk is very emblematic of that. Uh, So he's always been a favorite of mine. I, I also green is one of my favorite colors. I don't know if that has anything to do with it either. Um, but I saw this movie in theaters uh, when oh, it came this out. Movie. I didn't even mention this movie. Yes, I also saw this movie in theaters. I saw this movie in theaters in 2003 and was, as a fan of The Incredible Hulk, confused. Same. Um, I was like, wait, Hulk dogs? Um, who's the villain? Is that supposed to be Absorbing Man? Like, what? what's happening here? Um, so, like, I didn't get it and and again it was compared to the superhero movies that we had had leading up to this point which i'll 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 break down here 
momentarily. Um, this was so different from all of those things. Um, unabashedly and unapologetically. So to where at the time it felt like this kind of weird tone deaf sort of thing. Whereas now it, I mean, I watch it now and it almost feels like a breath of fresh air to me, but I think that's probably where you and I differ. Honestly, actually, no. Oh, we don't differ there. That's the maybe the one and only thing I like about this movie. Okay, that it tries to do something different with a superhero movie. I appreciate what Ang Lee was trying to do. Um, I like some of the choices he makes, but the rest of the movie is kind of trash. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say Hulk, good movie. Oh, and I'm I'm gonna go out on a limb. Maybe not out of a limb. This is well, I don't know. Everybody's tried to reassess this movie lately. I've it's heard. true. Like, go back and reassess Ang Lee's Hulk. It's that good, actually. And to that, I would say no. It still isn't. Um, I I still enjoy. And look, you. It's okay to like a movie. It's okay not to like a movie. Just don't be a dick about it. Yeah. Um, Brett and I are going to disagree, and we are not going to be dicks to each other. No. So no, that's not going to happen. Respect. Correct. Um, so, but, but yeah, I, I, so I saw this movie and I was very confused by what was happening here. Again, going back and rewatching it, I appreciate more what Ang Lee was trying to do. Um, and what he actually does manage, what he and James Seamus actually do manage to accomplish. Um, I find really pretty impressive. Um, honestly, particularly after, uh, listening to an interview that Seamus did with the blank check podcast. Uh, which I I listened to um, uh, about an hour before we started recording and a lot of good information about the Hulk uh, in that interview. So I'll, I'll probably be dispensing uh, some of that information as we continue through this episode. But um, but yeah, like I, I didn't really understand this movie at the time. I went to Universal and I read I, I did not ride the roller coaster because it looks um, looked like a little much for for a fat boy like myself. Um but, um, but yeah, like, um, yeah, this movie confused the snot out of me. Uh, the Ang Lee of it all, uh, like many other people, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was my introduction to Ang Lee. I have since seen, how many of his other movies have I seen at this point? I, ooh, is this the only one of his I've seen? That can't, no, I've seen The Ice Storm. Okay, I've also seen The Ice Storm. Um, but uh, I, I, I feel like I should. And I also saw the episode of the hire that he directed the chosen, but I feel like I should do uh, an Ang Lee watch through. I think that would be, I think that would be a worthwhile endeavor. I feel like probably would be too. He seems to be a very well-renowned director. Uh, And, and which is why I think this movie feels like such a departure for him because most of the movies that he's made prior to this point with the possible exception of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, are kind of these very, at least in my my estimation, and I could be way off base here, but in, in a lot of ways are kind of these staid dramas. Um, like The Ice Storm is a movie about a key party. Um, and there are like Toby, Toby Maguire and Christina Ricci, I think, play children in it. Um, there's some weird sexual politics in there. Sigourney Weaver's actually phenomenal in the movie. Um, but I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's an interesting film. 
Um, but you know, ride with the devil is kind of this weird Western that he directed. Um, Brokeback mountain, obviously the, the, the talking point, uh, at the time was, you know, Oh, gay cowboys. Um, which, you know, is the second time that they've awarded, um, best director to the director of a gay cowboy movie, but not best picture. Um, weirdly, uh, to a movie with a single world word title, starting with C the first time was when crash beat Brokeback mountain. The second time was when, uh, Coda beat revenge or, uh, power of the dog this past year at the Oscars. So yeah, Jane Campion and Ang Lee won, uh, won best director. The picture itself did not win best picture. So well, that sounds like a hyper-specific letterbox list. Oh. Ready to be written. Oh, it's already been written, Brett. It's up there. Oh, okay. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's up there, my man, uh, for sure. Go check it out. But um, but yeah, so that's the... Um, I, don't, I don't know. Like, I, I'm not super familiar with Ang Lee. I was really interested to see Gemini Man when it came out. Um, I think the Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk episode of the Blank Check podcast is maybe the single greatest podcast episode ever recorded. It also includes the greatest joke in the history of human humanity, um, honestly. So, have you have you listened to that episode, Brett? I have not. You you need to, um, if for no other reason, the envelope, and that is all I will say about that. So that's cool. I yeah. appreciate you not saying any more than that. Yeah, I'm just gonna say the envelope. That's all I'm gonna say. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm definitely interested in, in watching more Ang Lee movies, but I think one of his big cinematic inspirations was Ingmar Bergman, who's again known for these kind of very atmospheric, moody, um, staid dramas, uh, things like Fanny and Alexander and Wild Strawberries, movies that are incredible, Seventh Seal, like amazing movies, but, um, you know, very, very picturesque, very beautiful uh, but also very slow moving and very um, introspective, which this movie does a lot of, which is wild for a superhero movie, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, which wasn't really a fan of that so much. Let's see. I, I, I ate that up with a spoon. It's too much psychology in this movie. And it's a lot of armchair psychology, if we're being honest. Um, and I'm not really a fan of that. Doesn't bother me. Well, good for you. I know it is good. I care, for me. I care way more about accuracy and psychology just for the general uh, public to not get confused about mental health issues. As sure. They have been for decades. Here's the thing though. Uh, if the public is getting their information about mental health uh, from movies, from Hollywood films, I, I think that's, that's, that's problem number one. Um, well, sure. I don't disagree, but at the same time, you gotta, you gotta try harder. Like, Part of the reason that there's such misinformation about things like that out there is because of pop culture. So try harder. That's all I'm saying. Okay, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Don't compare me to him. Um, I'm trying to make a serious point no, about that. I know, I know, I know, I know. Point taken, point taken. So much for me not being a dick this episode. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, we're not supposed to be a dick, remember? You said that I, I did, I did. I throw in my own. Oh, well, if it isn't my own words repeated back to me, how dare you, sir? Um, Get hoisted by that petard, sir. Damn petard. Um, all right. So we are talking Ang Lee's Hulk today, uh, a movie that I enjoyed and Brett thought was fine. Um, but we do need to get Brett to that part of the show that we get to every damn time. 
uh, which is the plot. And how do we do the plot, Brett? We do it. In 60 seconds. We do the plot in 60 seconds around here. That's right. Uh, For those of you new to the show, we do uh, recount the plot of the movie we're discussing in 60 seconds or less. Uh, That is kind of our thing. And to decide which of us is going to do it, really, I don't even know why we use this anymore because it's me. Um, But we're going to we're going to turn to our good friend, the coin of justice, who, let's be honest. The rulings given by the coin of justice are always just and they are always fair. That is why it is the coin of justice. That having been said, I feel like it's been a little more one-sided of late. Uh, and by of late, I mean like the past 20 episodes or so. Well, let me ask you, Steven, is, it, is this season three? Have we started season three? We have not started season three yet, no. Okay, so I'll, I'll be calling heads until we start season three. No, season three will start um, the second week of September, I believe. Our second episode in September will be the beginning of season three. All right, so we're, we're coming up on the end of it. So yeah, we you know, you would think we'd end the season with the mummy um you know the big one sure decided to do episode 100 instead deal with it and i mean i mean it, the 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 fault is ours because the seasons are the year so the first 52 episodes were season one the next 52 episodes would be season two um so that ends on the because we started this the second week of september i believe if i'm not mistaken um of 2020 so we're coming up on the end of our second year right now. But, you know, that means episode like 103, 104, because, again, we did have to slot another thing in there. But Yeah, well, it's not, I mean, not that it matters to anybody out there. We really no. use it for organi- our own organizational purposes. No. Nope. For anybody lost as to why I haven't brought it up, I alternate what I call for the flip, depending. So first season, I called Tails every time. This season, I've called Heads every time. Much to my uh, Delight. Yeah. Um, So we'll see how this one goes. We will. Uh, But I've got the coin of justice here again, whose rulings are always fair and always just. Uh, But Brett, go ahead and call it in the air. Uh, Heads, as previously mentioned. Um, Damn you! It still heads. How I fumbled the toss and it still heads. Look, man. I don't. Again, as I say every (laughs) single time, probability would dictate no matter how you flip that coin, it's going to land on tails eventually. I have done, it will start landing on Tails, Brett, in season three. <laughs> yeah, you damn right. <laughs> I think I've done something to anger the coin of justice for which I must make atonement. And I don't know what that is. So I guess, I guess we're just going to have to like hash it out and have a conversation and see if we can come out um, on better terms on the other side. I guess, I guess tune in next week to see how that goes. Maybe, maybe we pay that off next week. I have no idea. Maybe look, you know, give it offerings, um, whisper sweet nothings to it. Burn, burn some incense in my, in my, in my podcast studio, which is literally just my office. Yeah. Cleanse it with some sage, cleanse it with some sage, you know, light some incense, say some prayers. Um, you know, burn a, burn one of the cheeseburgers that I bought and, you know, bring it in as a, as a burnt offering. Whoa, 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 whoa. You don't want, don't waste a good cheeseburger. Like Dude, that. I've, I've got to make sure, I've got to make sure it is an appeasing offering unto the coin of justice. All right. And they've, they've cheeseburgers, as you and I both know, have that high fat content. That's, that is, that is according to the old Testament, a pre, a pleasing aroma unto the Lord. So I can only imagine how great the coin of justice is going to find it. Well, there was a lot of things in the Old Testament <laughs> for the Lord that we don't really like to talk about anymore. Uh, 
I why whatever do you mean, Brett? No, we're not going to do that. We no, are going. <laughs> we're going to put 30, 60 seconds on the clock, and I am going to try to uh, to to recite the plot of this film. Is what I'm going to do I mean, in sixty can, seconds or less. You can you can do it. It's not super dense. Um, I'm not super super dense. No. All right, man. Whenever you're ready. All right. David Banner uh, is uh, he's a geneticist. Uh, You get, first of all, a really fucking incredible uh, title sequence. And then David Banner is a geneticist. His wife has a kid. He's experimenting on his kid because he exposed himself to like some dangerous chemicals. And then those were passed on to his son. So he's doing experiments on him to try to fix his own condition brought about. Uh, Something happens. uh, The kid gets adopted. And he's a, he becomes a gamma scientist himself, and he gets exposed to a lethal dose of, of radiation trying to protect random person who doesn't show up in the movie again from radiation. And that turns him into a rampaging green monster. Uh, and so the military is trying to catch him. Meanwhile, this mysterious janitor played by Nick Nolte shows up. It's David Banner. Um, and so the kid's name is Bruce uh, Kressler, but he's actually Bruce Banner and he's the Hulk. Uh, and so whenever he gets angry, he turns into a big monster. Uh, he's in love with Betty, whose dad is the general. And uh, I don't know. He turns into a monster a lot. He gets captured by the government, gets free, gets captured by the government again, fights his dad, kills his dad, and then escapes. The end. And that's time. Like how I covered the last like hour and a half of this movie in like 10 seconds. In true disenfranchised fashion. Yes. Yes, that is that is how it usually goes, because we usually get two in the weeds early on, uh, and that sixty seconds sneaks up on you, sirs and ma'ams and and non-binary individuals. Um, it, it it sneaks up on you pretty fast. So, yeah, but we did it. We landed the plane. <laughs> we got there, uh, much like my rambly bit earlier. We got there, um, but yeah. So, man, I don't. Uh, let's just start this off with, I do not like how they changed his origin story. Um, I think every version that we've seen, at least in, in film, and we'll talk about this probably a little more uh, next week, wink, um, changes his origin to some degree. Because the original origin is he's he's basically in a nuclear test site and he gets exposed to a lethal dose of radiation, but nuclear test sites aren't really a thing anymore and haven't been since like the fifties and sixties, maybe. Well, sure. But there's a difference between like changing the location where the accident happens and making his dad a scientist that injects himself with stuff that then gets carried into him genetically as a child and then the accident still happens. It should, like it's, it's an extra step that it's clearly just done to like what? help tell this really deeply psychological story. But I, th- I think also what they're trying to do is to try to put it into a context where why didn't he die? Because we all know, like in the 60s, there's some level of plausible deniability as to what happens when someone is exposed to radiation, which is why so many, particularly the Marvel characters, get their powers when they're exposed to some form of radiation. It's the Fantastic Four. It's the Incredible Hulk. Like this was a joke amongst my friends and I in college. We, we just the magic through the magic power of gamma rays. Anything can happen. Uh, yes, I know the Fantastic Four were cosmic rays. Do not come after me. I know I have nerd cred. It's fine. 
But, you know, thanks to, you know, all the, the, you know, radiation is kind of this key to unlocking superpowers. But, you know, by 2003, we know better exposure to radiation causes cancer and death. Um, so, like, how is he able to be exposed to this radiation? And, you know, what's what's the new what is the the radiation of the late 90s, early 2000s? It's it's the human genome. It's it's that's what we were all doing in the late '90s, early 2000s with in science. We were trying to crack the human genome. Um, is human cloning possible? We've cloned Dolly the sheep. Can we clone people too? Um, you know, can can by by messing around with our genetics, can we you know create enhanced human beings? Like these are questions that we're asking. So what we're doing is really splicing together, pun intended, a a like late nineties, early two thousands science fiction theme with a sixties uh, science fiction theme. And I, I honestly, I think I, I don't mind it as much for that reason. I mean, I get that, but it, it, uh, it gives off some like real fandom energy of like, here's this thing that was presented to us. It doesn't really make sense. How can we make it make sense? And, and yeah, it, it does. I, I will agree with you on that point. But then again, we also need to remember that superhero movies as we know them today are still in their infancy in 2000 or 2003. Like when this movie goes into production, the only Marvel superhero movies that existed were X-Men and Blade. That's it. Like Sam Raimi has not changed the game with Spider-Man yet. More on that later. Um, like Daredevil's coming later in the year. I mean, we're still a long way off from a lot of this stuff rolling out. And because of that, there's not really a frame framework or a language for what makes comic book movies work. Like Blade was this kind of really weird, esoteric, almost indie film. And then X-Men was kind of a hit, but they hadn't really unlocked what that was or how that was able to hit the way that it had. So they're just at this point kind of throwing stuff at the wall to see what works, which is why honestly, this kind of era of superhero films flat is, is, is very, it's flash in the pan. Like it starts off really strong and fizzles out almost immediately and is on, on its last legs by the time Iron Man comes, Iron Man and dark Knight come in in 2008 and kind of reinvigorate the genre. Um, but I mean, this, the, there's five years in between this movie and that one. And there's so many people doing comic book movies so badly that by the time we get to 2008, Dark Knight and Iron Man are again, like the injection shot in the arm that the genre needs. And now it's the only genre they make movies out of. Well, yeah, because I feel like somebody finally took the source material seriously. Like, and that was, really... go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that was Feige, who's also an executive producer on this movie. Yeah, which is, you know, but it feels like I, I feel like Ang Lee had way more creative control over this movie than Feige ever could have. Well, of course, he, he just like uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon just won Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars. The man was nominated for Best Director and, and Best Picture. Like they're going to let him. I mean, this is the movie he makes right after that. Like, so basically he. He's, he's given his blank check and they're like, well, what do you want to make? He sits down to have a meeting with Universal. And he's like, I don't know. Hulk sounds fun. Yeah. And, this, and I, I, the entire time I'm watching this movie, I'm going, this really feels like a story Ang Lee wanted to tell. It just so happens to have the Hulk in it. Yep. Like, this is like, this is a story he already wanted to tell. 
with completely different characters. But like, mm-hmm. I don't know, slap the Hulk on it. That'll work. But it also feels like, and, and what's interesting is that he doesn't have the story credit on this. Like, this is not his story. This is James Seamus's story, who's his producing partner. But like, if you look at some of the the early Ang Lee films, like his first three films are Taiwanese films called the Father Knows Best trilogy, um, which are about a father's relationship with his children. Like, this is a theme that Ang Lee likes to come back to. The Ice Storm is about parents and their relationships with their children and their relationships with each other. Like, there's th- this is kind of a theme that I think he feels particularly drawn to. He had, I think, around this time, according to Seamus in the interview he did with Blank Check, Ang Lee had just lost both his real-life father and the lead actor from the Father Knows Best trilogy had both died, like, right around the same time when this movie was in either production or post-production. So, like, all of these things are, are I think, thematically, at least for him, things that are, th- th- this is a rich well for him to dig, to, to draw from, I think. Uh, yeah, which I can totally respect. I mean, it's what Tim Burton did for the longest time. Worked mm-hmm. through his trauma through his movies. Correct. And so I I can respect that. And this movie is, and again, like everything now is about trauma, but in 2003, a superhero movie about trauma felt like somewhat revolutionary, somewhat revolutionary or revelatory, honestly. Well, as previously mentioned, you know, mental illness in pop culture is pretty garbage most of the time. And Correct. so, you know, the... That was just another aspect of this movie that people probably didn't care to watch or like mm-hmm. or listen to in any way, shape, or form. Right. Which, you know, to varying degrees of uh, goodness, I suppose, just because some of the psychology in this movie is not so great. But that's neither here nor there, I guess. It's not really a big deal. But, but yeah, I mean, sure. And that's, I mean, look. We're you're listening to our podcast. You're gonna get our opinions. That's that's just that's just where it is. You yeah, may you may gonna... agree, you may disagree, and that's fine. Just don't be a dick. Yeah, and I, I mean, look, I'm not a psychologist. Disclaimer: I'm not a psychologist. Um, this may be closer to real life psychological issues or not. I, I saw a lot of discussion about how Freudian this movie is, and mm. Freud is definitely not a benchmark. He used to be no, uh, but he's definitely not anymore. Well, I mean, with no. any scientific endeavor, like our as we learn more, as we discover more, as we you know gain more knowledge, um, the reality of the science changes. Um, I mean, oh, there sure. was the long for the longest time we thought the the sun revolved around the Earth, um, and then we you know Galileo did the math, and the Catholic Church excommunicated him, and um, and now we know better. So, you know, sure, yeah, but in terms of Freud, we knew better before 2003. Sure. So. But in and but and, and again, I mean, and Jung is the same way. Carl Jung is is he's another one that's been, I think, thoroughly um, dismissed or many of his theories, at least, have been thoroughly dismissed. But again, like you, you talk about child psychology, someone's going to be bringing up Carl Jung. So. And I could be wrong on that again. Just again, disclaimer, I'm also not a psychologist. I took Psych 101 in college my senior year, um, and I I passed it, but I don't remember a damn thing. So there you go. For what it's worth, uh, and I mean I'm not I'm not either. Like I said, but I I maybe took a little bit more psychology in college. It was my minor in college. So oh okay, my minors yeah. were were Greek and theater. Those were my minors. So yeah, yikes. And my you know what my major was, Brett. Uh, I'll give you a hint. It's 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 about as useful as Greek and theater. 
Uh, creative writing? Nope. Philosophy. Uh, okay. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Technically religion and philosophy, because I went to a Christian uh, a Christian college, so of course it was, but yeah. Well, not useful, but you became a teacher of religion. So I, I did. For eight, for eight years of my life, that, was, that, that happened. And before that, I was a youth pastor. And now I talk about movies and cuss on the internet. So that's fun. Um, that's, that's, I'm, I'm a fucking delight. My parents are so proud of me. (laughs) You you still love Jesus. And that's all we can really say here. I'm, I'm, Jesus is all right. I'm okay with Jesus. Jesus. I'm, I'm down with JC for sure. Um, I'm not for the record, but I, yeah, well, again, maybe the most, maybe the least surprising thing you've said so far. I mean, to you, I don't think the the general fans out there know where I stand religiously speaking. Touche. Uh, so, you know, yeah, yeah you're, 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 our... you're far less open about it than I am. That, that is oh, true. For sure. Yeah. So my apologies to our Christian listeners out there. Uh, we've, I mean, we've had several Christian guests on this podcast too, including yeah. two pastors. Yeah. Who've so, guessed it multiple times. <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, look, we don't talk about it on there. If they were to bring it up, I would be like, I don't really want to talk about this. So, Which know. is why you usually are very quiet in those moments. <laughs> yeah. We don't do it often, but when we do, I probably shouldn't say anything. Because uh, I don't want to derail the podcast with an argument. So, sure. Yeah. We've never done that before. Um, I, look, personally, fine. Uh, with a guest sure sure not, not a good look right yeah you and i you and i have a rapport we know we're going to be friends after this is all over with yeah i don't want to piss off a guest and then they never come back yeah i mean lord i mean the the, the most the two biggest arguments we've had have basically led to us not talking to each other for a week that's pretty much been that's kind of the history of our argument of our, of our that's our argumentative history yeah, so. it doesn't last long it, they really don't we're fine we're friends guys we we really are friends we really do enjoy one another's company yeah. um we we right what you like the person you're hosting a podcast with that never happens um you know we just it's just what it is um what were we talking about again <laughs> uh the psychology in this movie now it's maybe not so great sure which again I, no go ahead so, you know so it because i mean it's mainly it's mainly the did thing that i brought up earlier like because mm-hmm. that's kind of at the core of hulk's character and the duality like you mentioned which i was going to say if, if you want to if you want like a glimpse into my psyche and how it doesn't make any sense favorite batman villain two-face correct he is the epitome of mm-hmm. like the uh, split personality DID disorder. Um, Dissociative Hulk, though, identity disorder disorder? Yeah, disassociative. Yeah, d- disorder disorder. Um, right. Okay. All right. I just I wanted to clear, like DC Comics, Detective Comics Comics. Gotcha. Right. Um, just want to make sure we're on the same page. So, but then at the same time, I'm like, Hulk, not meh, he's fine, I guess. So I don't really understand what happens there. I don't really know why I love one, but don't the other. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Well, and but and and the other thing that I find really interesting here um, is that the Hulk is basically just a werewolf by by another name. I mean, he's a man who, when something happens, something external happens to him. In the case of a werewolf, it's a full moon. In the case of the Hulk, it's he gets angry. He completely transforms into this creature that he has absolutely no control over. Uh, no. No, that's not gonna fly with me. Um, that's not. That, that's no. That that's not a thing. Um, 
because look, man, like I get it. I get where you're coming from. I see the logic there. Um, but hold on. I need to gather my thoughts for a minute. You've thrown me off extremely. Um, I was not expecting that take. Um, I'm pretty sure that was Stanley's inspiration for the character, but I'm, I'm doing my research on that right now. Well, then I would take, I would take it up with Stanley too. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be that guy. It's like, oh, Stanley said that. All right, never mind. Uh, fuck you, Stanley. No, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but fuck you, Stanley. <laughs> now hold on. <laughs> I, I did not say that. For the whoa, record. whoa, whoa, I did whoa, not whoa! Say that. Hold on. Brett, I, how dare you? How like, dare you speak so ill of the dead, Stanley? Like, rest in peace. A shut up, legend, always. Shut up. <laughs> I love Stanley. All right. <laughs> We we stand stand around here, okay? We're we're stand stands over here. Yes, <laughs> because we stand stand stand. I look because there's there's so much like just lore and things attached to the werewolf that I don't I don't think I don't know I'm not going to be able to explain this properly. Just forgive me, listeners. Um, it's it's just there's too many differences. It it's. It's really like boiling something down to its barest bones explanation and saying they're the same when there's so many other factors that make them different. I think you're I mean, it sounds like you're making a semantic argument more than anything. Like, I'm not saying they're identical, but I'm saying there are enough similarities that you could draw that comparison. What other similarity is it other than an external force turns them into something? What else do you need? I, I don't know. Maybe like the the weaknesses, the the general like lore that's, and that's why it's, aspects of it. That's why it's an inspiration and not like a direct like he's not he's not a werewolf, but it's it's kind of a similar type of story. Well, okay. So now now it sounds like you're backpedaling on your statement a little bit. You no, said I'm not. I'm saying the, I'm, you said he's basically a werewolf. And I, that's not I, because you're crafting a semantic argument. Now I have to meet you where you are. I look, it's, it's not a semantic argument. I'm just, you know, as usual, not explaining my side very well. And because I don't agree with you, I'm not coming to your defense to help you. <laughs> right. Which I usually need you to do. In Correct. These situations. Um, because but, not only am I usually bad at explaining my point, You've also taken me off guard, and I had to do this on the fly, which is just like that's my brain doesn't work that way. I was gonna say, Brett. Brett is very Batman. He needs time to prepare. I do, um, and I have not. I've not given Brett any time to prepare. No, so I'm I just am crumbling under everything. I'm I've just jokered off. up this entire podcast. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like, I'll, I don't know. Maybe Brett, I'll write I just, a thesis and post it on social media. I just, I just uh, well, you. <laughs> I, I was gonna say you'd have to be on social media, but I guess you are on Instagram and Letterboxd, so. Yeah, I can. I could probably put it into my Hulk review. There you go. You never write reviews about anything, but this is no, the one you do. But Why the this. Hulk is not like a werewolf the, by Brett Wright. For this. <laughs> for this and for spite, I will do this thing. Um, so for the record, uh, according to Wikipedia, our main source of, of research, um, it looks like, uh, according to Stan Lee, uh, in an interview with... Uh, or in uh, according to Tom DeFalco in his Hulk, the Hulk, the incredible guide. Uh, it looks like Lee's original, according to Lee, his inspiration for the character was a combination of Frankenstein and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. 
Yeah, which I, I would liken him more to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde than a werewolf. And I mean, those elements are also there, but I think, and that's, but th- those are the things that I like about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and about werewolves is there is that duality to them and that conflict between them. Um, and that's the thing that I, that I also really like about the Hulk is there is that, that con- like the Wolfman is, I, as I mentioned last week, my favorite of the universal monsters. And I think one of the interesting things about this movie is that when Lee, Lee and Ang Lee, not Stanley, when when Ang Lee and James Seamus pitched Hulk to Universal and Universal had had the rights to the character for years and had been trying to do something with the character for years uh, unsuccessfully. um, Lee's pitch was that he wanted to do the Hulk as kind of a way of getting back to Universal's roots and basically making Hulk into a Universal Monsters movie. Um, and I think there are a lot of similarities with this movie and at least in the in the transformation scenes, both to and from the Hulk uh, in the tortured romance and the tortured persona. There's a lot in common with this uh, this movie and the Wolfman in in those respects. Like I was I was getting some real Wolfman, but particularly the scene in the cabin after he defeats the Hulk dogs like there's some I was getting some real Wolfman vibes off of this movie. Yeah, definitely in this movie, um, which, I mean, more power to him, I guess, but I don't know. I, I have so many thoughts swirling around in my brain right now. The first one would be, I, I think I like the comparison to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde better just because, and spoilers for a century old book, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are the same person. Like he realizes at the end what? of the book. That- he realizes at the end of the book that it's not the potion doing anything to him. Right. Uh, he's, he's really just a serial killer with um, split personality disorder. Um, and I think that lends itself better to the Hulk because the Hulk is Bruce Banner and Bruce Banner is the Hulk. Like it's, that's an eventuality we get to in the comics eventually. Right. Um, but you know, not, not something you can really ever present in an origin story movie. Right. Uh, and and then to the to the the Wolfman point, I mean, sure, like I could understand wanting Universal to get back to its you know Universal monster roots, but something that Universal has consistently tried and failed to do. Yeah, like it, as we mentioned last week, right? It's it's very apropos, uh, mm. just because I mean Universal's been trying to do that shit for decades. You think you can do better uh, with a superhero? Uh, but again, this is this is this is fairly untilled earth at this point. Like this is something that hasn't really been done before in the superhero genre as it existed at the time was relatively new. Like no one knew what it was capable of or what it could be. And so you get someone like Ang Lee and he's going to want to try to play with the formula a little bit. Yeah, which I understand. But then I got to think where does it go from here? Because, I mean, that's always one of the main questions we want to ask. It is mm-hmm. the whole point of our podcast. Right. Uh, where does it go from here? Because I don't feel like, because sure, maybe Nick Nolte's character is maybe based on Absorbing Man. Maybe. There are some, there, there, they, so to hear Seamus tell it, and one of the questions that someone in the audience asked at the, at the blank check, in, in the blank check interview, because it was after a screening of the Hulk, or I'm sorry, of Hulk, um, drop the the, it's cleaner. Um, 
is this this character is not really based on anyone from the comics like how did you come up with this and Seamus's answer is honestly he's not based on any one character because he's based on like five like they just we just kind of borrowed elements from different characters from those early Stanley and Jack Kirby stories that we liked and kind of amalgamated them into one character so the power set is very similar to the absorbing man um Hulk's father uh, or Bruce Banner's father was a was a character who was um who who did appear as a villain briefly early in the run um so i mean there there are uh, and there are elements of of other characters as well again to hear Seamus tell it that are kind of baked into this cake overall um but it's not just one character it's it's actually several which is definitely something that you know modern mcu does on a regular basis maybe not five characters they sometimes take two or three Right. But or if, you they'll, com- if you start combining too many characters, you run out of characters. Sure. Or or they'll subvert your expectations of what the character is, like Iron Man 3 and Trevor Slattery. Um, like that whole kind of um, pulling pulling the, the rug out from under you moment there. Um, I, so so they, they, they do try to find, the MCU does try to find ways to subvert expectations, but I think it it's a very bold move to, to make your villain a character that just flat out does not appear in the comics at all and making him into a, a a compelling villain, both thematically, emotionally, and then someone turning that character into someone who can actually square off against the Hulk. Um, And I think that the good villains in, in any kind of story where your hero has that kind of dual identity or that duality to them, the, the, the struggle is always, how do we have a villain that can combine both the personal and the heroic. Like how can we have someone that intersects? I think the best example of that is the green goblin from Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Um, and I, I, I think this one works. I don't, I would not call this the least successful example, but I think the least successful examples are ones where you have to have multiple villains to do basically the same thing. Um, like for example, Batman forever or, um, Batman Returns, which I again I, I like both of those movies, but I think the the villain usage is is a little less because because you're trying to basically split up the the personal from the heroic and and again Tim Burton's Batman does that really well. You make the Joker the person that killed Bruce Wayne's parents. There you go. Is that how it happened in the comics? No, absolutely not. But if you do that, you fix a really big story problem. And now your villain, your your hero has both a personal and professional issue with your with your villain, which, again, I think makes for a more compelling story, personally. Yeah, I, I agree, because I know that was a pretty controversial choice in the original Batman movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you've only got, you know, two hours and however many other hours in sequels. Mm-hmm. To tell a story you don't have this long drawn out time to be like let's explore the themes of just a random thug killing his parents and making him batman and let's, right. let's let's tease this out and explore it all we don't have that kind of time well it's i mean now time. now we'd make these things three four hours long if you know the fans demand that we hashtag release the insert name of crappy director here cut well i mean dark knight was two and a half hours yeah that's true i mean but you know uh, I mean, this movie was almost two and a half. This movie was like two hours, 18 minutes. This movie yeah, is man, really fucking long. That's another thing I hated about this movie. Why did, that, why it, did... that might be my least favorite thing about this movie is how fucking long it is. It's so long. It drags. It's boring. I fell asleep a couple times. It's Damn, like, son. Yeah. 
I did not like this movie. I mean, but but it's not like I can't say it's bad. There isn't anything I can really point out other than the things I already have. Right. I can say are bad. It's just like other than some of the acting or the writing, not the acting. The acting's fine. The I was writing, gonna say the acting's uh, great. How dare you besmirch the actors in this movie, sir? I mean, well, with the exception of Eric Bana, sometimes uh, I, he has he literally legitimately has my favorite moment in this movie, like it, performance moment in this movie. Um, the scene again, it 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 might be my favorite scene in the movie. It's right after he defeats the Hulk dogs, uh, which again are a thing that is not in the comics. That is invented completely for this movie. As a kid, I thought it was kind of ridiculous. Now I think it was really fun. <laughs> I'm watching this going. I mean, he's just beating the snot out of dog. Now, if you're a dog lover, I am going to caution you. Maybe you don't watch this movie because um, the things the Hulk does to those dogs. Mm. Yeah, no, normally not things you see done in a Hollywood movie to, to animals. Um, so so a word of caution to to my dog lover friends out there. And yes, I do own a dog. You probably heard him barking earlier. He is my best friend in the whole wide world. But um, yeah, uh, but the scene after that, after the Hulk base and he turns, he, he sees Betty and turns from Hulk back into Banner. And he has this moment where he's like coming off of this. Uh, of this transformation and he he comes up to her and without realizing completely what he's doing, he reaches out and just starts to choke her. Like he just, he throws his hand up to her neck and just starts to strangle her. And you cut back to his face and the look of absolute, like shock, fear, horror, regret, like five emotions wash over his face at one time. And it is, it is maybe the best single reaction in a, in a superhero movie that I've ever seen. Like it is, and it is, it, it's so simple and it's so poignant, but that, that, that is entirely in Banna's performance. So for as stilted as some of his line readings may come off or for all the times that his accent may slip here and there, like I'm willing to give him a pass because that moment was so transcendent for me. Like it was, it, it did not feel like acting. It, it felt very real. I mean, I'll give you that one. And then praise you the other end of the spectrum where he's talking about he's, he's in, in the morning eating at the table. He's talking about how he transformed into the Hulk the first time, what it felt like. Uh, man, that's cringy. Do uh, we, we just keep saying, ugh, ugh, over and over again? Like, could really, like, come on. That's not, I, I couldn't, I almost couldn't watch that scene. It was uncomfortable. <laughs> that's how bad it was. It, it didn't, it didn't really bother me much at all actually well, clearly, again, you gave this movie four stars of course it did uh, uh, but wow way to blow up my spot sorry sorry my bad we're not even to that part of the podcast yet sir how dare you like, I, like, you know it's fine <laughs> is it it's, it's okay it's not like everybody oh we're waiting on the score <laughs> all right Delete. well i guess yeah, i don't have to finish watching this episode listening yeah, to this episode now i gotta finish this episode anymore i know his score already. well they didn't have it in their mind so they're still waiting Yes, thanks want... to you, they haven't heard yours. Yeah, um, but you can if you want. Yeah, I'm not gonna. I, I'm not. I'm not gonna be that petty. Um, All right, I appreciate that. It's. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> no, we. Um, but but and then I mean and then you've got Jennifer Connelly, who is I think she seems like one of those people who's just kind of a victim of wrong place, wrong time in terms of a lot of the roles that she selects, um, because I think she's a unbelievably talented actor. She's an actress. I think we've probably covered her more than any other single performer on this podcast at this point, maybe. 
by pure coincidence too. Right. Yeah. It's just it, not intentional. It just kind of happened that way. Um, but I mean, we've covered two of her, three of her films just this year alone, um, Inkheart, um, Labyrinth and Hulk. So, and then we did um, Rocketeer and Alita Battle Angel in year one. So we've covered her. This is the fifth time we've covered Jennifer Connelly on this podcast. She, she's been in a lot of failed franchise stars. Maybe we have finally found our legitimate patron saint of the podcast. And and it's it's the it's the wife of our initial patron saint, Paul Bettany. Yeah, the, the patron sainted couple. The, the patron, the patron couple. Yeah, they're patron they're couple. the they're the patron couple of this podcast for sure. Um, I what what speaking of superhero movies starring Jennifer featuring Jennifer Connelly, um, the the great joke in Spider Man Homecoming where um, uh, Paul Bettany has basically been voicing Jarvis in the MCU for like the entirety of phase one and into phase two. Uh, and so who do they get to voice Spider-Man's Iron, Iron Man created suit in Spider-Man Homecoming? Jennifer Connelly. Yeah. It's it's just one of those very subtle jokes. And if you know, you know, and if you don't, you, it, it doesn't take you out of the movie or do anything for you. But I, I think it's really fun and very funny. It is. I agree. So, yeah. But, uh, but no, I mean, this, like, I, I think she's doing a phenomenal job here. And I think her role is kind of thankless because essentially she's doing the damsel thing. Now, she does get to talk some technical jargon, but she doesn't really do much beyond. I mean, her, her way of helping is calling her dad, like, consistently throughout the movie. It's just the way that she helps is calling her dad. So it feels like a, a poor use of Jennifer Connelly, who has, I think, also recently won her Oscar, if I'm not mistaken, um, for uh, A Beautiful Mind. Yeah, she won in 2002. So the year before she won for her 2001 film, uh, A Beautiful Mind. So so they got some star power here. Just uh, a shame she got immediately attached to yet another failed franchise. Well, and, and again, I, well, and if you hear James, listening to James Seamus talk about this movie is really interesting because he calls this the failure of his and Ang Lee's career. Um, because in a lot of ways it was like, this was their big blank check cash and it, it's a bounce to use the, the language that the blank check podcast use. Like it's, it's a, it's a pretty sizable bounce. Like this movie underperforms compared to expectations. And as a result, like we don't get we don't get the franchise, which Seamus had written a treatment for. And I'll go over that here shortly. Um, but Seamus had written a treatment for it like they were just again. He said, like the day after this movie came out, it just like all the kind of buzz and goodwill around the studio just kind of stopped. He was like something happened the day after the movie came out because of that underperformance. Now, it's still open number one at the box office the week that it came out all of that, but that, as we know from this podcast, is not always an indication of success in the long run and is not always an indication of your uh, your your movie making a ton of money either. No, but did, I mean, it still grossed a lot of money though, didn't it? It, it did okay. I mean, we're um, not going to get into that part of the podcast yet. But... Right, I, it will get there soon. It will happen soon, no worries. But, um, but yeah, it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't the, the colossal hit they were clearly hoping for, for sure. Right. 
Well, just because, as previously mentioned, the superhero movies not in a good spot right now. I mean, they're they're burgeoning, but and I think the thing that and again, Seamus tells the story and it it he tells it way better than I'm going to, but I'm going to tell the story anyway. Um, in 2002, he goes to the movie theater and he sees a movie, and the movie is called Spider Man, starring uh, their collaborator Toby Maguire and directed by a favorite of this podcast, Sam Raimi. Um, and he walks out of the theater and the movie of course ends like it's, it, it ends with like Spider-Man on top of the empire state building with the American flag. And he goes swinging towards the audience. And it's just this huge, like cheering crowd, like cloud crowd pleasing moment. I can't talk crowd pleasing moment. It's okay. I don't need to talk. I only host a podcast, um, crowd pleasing moment. And Seamus said he's at, he's like at the, the, the movie theater in times square, he walks out. He gets on his cell phone. He calls Ang Lee and goes, uh, Ang, we're fucked. Like, because this movie was in post-production by the time Spider-Man comes out. And the way he tells it, he goes, I realized when I watched that movie that Sam Raimi had created the superhero genre. And in a lot of ways, I think there's something to that. Um, like, he, he basically walks out. He goes, Sam Raimi has created the superhero genre. And what we're doing is not that. And so basically he's, he just says, Ang, we're fucked. And Ang's response was, yeah, I don't care. Um, it's fine. We're just, we're just going to make the movie we want to make. Um, but I think Seamus's words ended up proving true. Like people, people wanted something more like Spider-Man than they wanted something like Hulk. That was very kind of moody, atmospheric and experimental. Um, the things that they liked about Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon did not translate to the things that they liked about Hulk. Um, was it because of the foreign language? Was it because of the flying people? I don't know, honestly. But there was there was something that that got lost in the in the changeover from from Crouching Tiger to Hulk, that just the 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 general movie going populace was not on board for. Well, I think, and we definitely speak more about this next week. But the right, I think the the reason that. And not not just superhero movies. We might as well just say the MCU at this point, right? I mean, because they M- are kind of the dominant voice in that genre. So, yeah, and so the MCU is so homogenous now, as you mm-hmm. said in your Hulk review. Uh, so right. homogenous, um, and I think why that works so well is because you know we we don't as a general populace we don't mind a superhero story that tries to you know, be a little bit more serious and take itself more seriously and do something different. Right. Cause like who doesn't love the boys right now, for example. Correct. Um, Classic deconstruction. Right. But overall, I think it's, it's pretty proven at this point. We just want your regular old comic book experience. Mm-hmm. We, we want to go to the movies and enjoy a story and not have to think about it. Correct. We want to pick up a comic book, read it, have a good time, and put it back down and not have to think about it. Right. We want to go. We want to eat popcorn. We want to eat milk duds. We want to drink a, a soda larger than the human bladder can possibly contain. And we want to enjoy it. Yeah. And and honestly, in this day and age, who can fucking blame anybody for that? Touche. Like, yeah. I, I, you know, I think there is a reason why this is the dominant form of entertainment. Like this is, I think there are two reasons why this is the dominant form of entertainment. One, people find it comforting. And two, you kind of have to watch it all to understand any of it. Kind of, which is somewhat unfortunate. 
but but it is it is the thing that it is the reason it is so successful is because you know if if, if I want to go see Avengers Endgame, I've got to watch like the twenty movies that precede Avengers Endgame. Yeah, as as someone who is coming off of trying to introduce somebody to the MCU for the first time, incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very very hard to do. I don't even know if I'd try at this point. At this point, I'd just be like, "Look, is this something you want to do? Because if it's something you want to do, we can do it. But otherwise, I'm not going to force you to do this." Yeah, I mean, look, they wanted to. Okay, uh, so I was more than happy to you know guide them along the journey. Where did you lose but, them? Well, I never lost them. Oh, okay. It's you know, other stuff happened. Sure. Don't, I mean, it, it, it's a daunting task. It is, it is a daunting task. Particularly once you get into like phase four and the TV shows start. Cause then it's not like a two to three hour experience. Now you're buckling in for like multiple hours of television then on top of the movie experiences as well. Yeah. Luckily they're not, you know, 12 or 24 episode TV shows. That would be a bit much, even for me, mm-hmm. who is a diehard MCU fan. Correct. I'll admit it. Fuck you guys. Uh, I'm still an MCU fanboy. That's fine. No one's saying you can't be, dude. Well, no, nobody's saying that. But like, there's definitely there's more and more and more people coming to your side of the argument. Like, we're tired of these because it's all there is, man. Like, in particular, and again, you and I have had this disagreement before. I don't know if we've had it on mic, but and we can we can get into the MCU more next week like we can we can kind of table that but i'm i'm yeah. sorry you you had a point that you were you were making yeah well that's just that i think that you know the fact that uh Seamus saw that he saw the writing on the wall mm-hmm. like people love this because it's lighthearted you don't have to think about it too hard it's not insisting upon itself as i said earlier right right uh, like it's just lighthearted and fun and everybody loves it and whereas we made this like dark psychological, can you uh, call it a superhero movie? I don't know if you could. I mean, it's, 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 it, it kind of feels like they're, a, they're trying. And again, I, your, your, your mileage may vary on how successful they are. It feels like they're trying to do a superhero horror movie, a la the universal monsters circa the thirties and forties. Um, and like Seamus even goes so far as to say, like, also, in addition to the Universal Monsters, we were very heavily influenced by like Val Luton and filmmakers of his caliber. So like they're they're really trying to go for like an old Hollywood style movie with a modern sensibility and some really like modern technological advances like the motion capture, like the editing, all that stuff that kind of makes this movie feel both dated. And well, it, I think it mostly dates the movie at this point, but I, I still think. I still think the CGI looks kind of good. I, you know, I saw a lot of people saying it hasn't aged well, and I was like, I don't know if you watched the same movie I did. I think it looks pretty good for it looks, time period. Now, granted, we were watching the Blu-ray. I loaned you my copy of the Blu-ray um, to watch, but well, like, sure, but still. it looks it. It's been remastered, but it looks fucking great. <laughs> like, it looks really good. And I don't honestly, know if I go to great, but it did look pretty good. It looked pretty good. Like again, for something that came out in two thousand three, given how poorly CGI effects tend to age. Like you can tell they and I remember when the like the ads came out, they were using some unfinished CGI and it I remember that didn't look great. And people were like, oh, that looks good. Like, look, like, you know, people do on the Internet now. Um, but I think when the movie came out, it, it looked a lot better. Um, 
there's yes, that isn't poignant right now with right hulk cgi how, exactly how is that well and also just all the stories coming out about how overworked and underpaid um cgi artists are trying to get these movies out when the studio is mandated they come out after like and and having to like put like take reshoots and shit into consideration as well so they're really kind of rushing through a lot of this stuff um so the, a lot of the effects tend to come out unfinished or you know kind of a little lackluster like to see someone and and Ang Lee has been historic honestly I think since Crouching Tiger like one of his predominant preoccupations has been in visual effects and trying to kind of pioneer and push the limits and boundaries of what those can do like he's one of the one of the first one of the few directors who's actually attempted to film something in a high frame rate uh which he did with Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk which he did with Gemini Man um, which is is great for visual effects. Peter Jackson being another one who did that with the Hobbit movies, um, which I think can be jarring for some people sometimes, but like that that really makes your effects pop and, and stand out. And I think if you're a director like Jackson, like uh, like Lee, like James Cameron is another one, like these are the guys that are really trying to push those effects forward. And, and you look at most of his movies since then with a few exceptions, uh, I think Brokeback Mountain, the main use of CGI is CGI sheep. Uh, it's mostly what they did with those. Um, but like he's he's really trying to to kind of push the envelope forward with what special and visual effects can do, which I, I and, and I think a lot of that starts here. Uh, Ang Lee, by the way, did the motion capture for the Hulk in this movie. That's cool. Yeah. I, I definitely appreciate, you know, directors wanting to push the envelope with technology. The downside of that, though. No, there is definitely a dark side. I agree. Go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, a, a number of dark sides. The one I'm specifically talking about, though, is once it leaves the because th- first of all, you have to find a theater that's showing it in that uh, high frame rate. And unfortunately, all. none of those exist around us. No, they, I've I never mean, seen a movie really at a high frame rate in they this town. Exist anywhere, uh, let alone around us. Major movie markets. I think the closest one to us is going to be Chicago. Probably. Uh, but then after it leaves theaters, mm-hmm. now you have to buy a TV that runs, that is able to run that frame rate. So I have I one. Mean, look, more power to you for trying to do this with technology and more power to you for being able to afford something like that. Um, most people I, can. Most I, people I, can. I sold a house and got an apartment and, um, use use some of that money to 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 buy the good things that i always wanted to watch movies better so yeah yeah if that gives you an indication how expensive that shit is steven had to sell a house to buy one i still have money left don't worry it's okay i didn't i didn't blow the entire the entire house budget after we sold it on a on a tv and a 4k player that my may or may not be region free um but my point still stands you know, and, and you're absolutely right. And I think that's be and, and it, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because it, if you're able to, it drives you to the theater to experience these movies. If you're someone who cares about that, like I am, and I know there are others out there who do, it pushes you to go to the theater to experience these movies the way the filmmaker intended them to be seen. If you don't care about that and just want to watch a movie, you can find it in the regular frame rate and it'll be fine. Um, but you won't be experiencing it the way that the filmmaker really intended. Um, and again, the fact that we live so far from one of those major markets, the closest market to us is three to three and a half hours away, depending on where we're leaving town from. Um, 
it's it's um it's not the easiest prospect in the world. It's not, it's not the easiest thing to do. So, I mean, we're lucky if we can find something projecting in 70 millimeter in this town, uh, let alone something that's, that's going to be boasting the, you know, the frame rate necessary to watch a Billy Lynn's long halftime walk or a Gemini man or a, a Hobbit, the unexpected journey or whatever that first Hobbit movie was called. Yeah. On top of the fact that, as you said, it can be jarring for some people to watch. It yeah. It makes some people sick to see something on a big screen in that frame rate, like, which for Billy Lynn, at least was the point. Like I remember that the, the scene in question where he uses that high frame rate, he uses it through the entire movie, but the scene where from what I understood is most effective is during the titular long halftime walk where it's this soldier returning from war who has, who's like experiencing like some PTSD um, and between like the flashes and the lights and the way that Lee uses the camera, the frame rate is really effective in putting you inside his head and helping you experience what that must be like. Yeah. I mean, did, did, were there any records like making anybody sick or anything or probably, but I mean, most of the critics that I heard were like the movie's okay. I mean, it's fine. It's interesting. Like it's an interesting experience that long halftime walk though. Like they're like for, for those like 10 minutes of that long halftime walk, the movie like becomes a transcendent experience. Um, so, you know, which is more than you could say for any of the, the Robert Zemeckis motion capture movies, right? Like at, at, you know, he's, he's another one who likes to try to push the envelope with technology. Uh, there's a great Patrick H. Willems video called Robert Zemeckis and his wonderful toys. Like dude just loves playing with toys. Like he loves the technology of the thing. And he's been doing that since, back to the future part two, honestly. Um, so, I mean, there, there are certain directors who are innovative and they basically kind of create the technology that allows everybody else to make the movies they want to make, but it, someone always has to push the envelope. Someone always has to start it. Someone always has to do it first. And unfortunately those films are not always successful for that reason. And when they are like, for example, like something like the matrix, which really kind of perfects this bullet time that became all the rage shortly after um, that just makes those movies that much sweeter. Really? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I just, I, I am not, you're that kind of person. I'm not right. I don't really, I don't need to see something in its intended format. I just want to go watch a movie, man. I don't care. Show me pretty pictures. I don't care how good they look. Um, and I, and, and again, that's another thing I really liked about this movie is you've got these, particularly when the movie shifts to the desert for like the end of the second act, um, you've got these really incredible, like long desert vistas. And then the camera's doing like the Brian De Palma split screen thing, which is kind of mimicking, like Ang Lee is very kind of cheekily mimicking, uh, a comic book, like what it, what it feels like to read a comic book in the editing language of the film, which I think the whole movie. Right. There, there are moments. Well, I think it works particularly well in the desert scenes, um, but you're right. He is. And there, I think there are moments where it works really well. And there are moments where it's very distracting, but I appreciate his commitment to it regardless. Uh, but I think it works particularly well in the desert scene. The one shot that the one editing cut that just kind of blew me away a little bit was there's this tracking shot of the helicopters uh, from overhead flying across the desert. And then from the bottom of the screen, helicopter blades just rise up into the picture. And all of a sudden, 
like it carries with it to another shot of helicopters like traveling left to right across the screen uh, or right to left rather across the screen. And it, it was, it was such a seamless edit. Like I almost didn't know it was happening until about three quarters of the way through the edit. Like it was like there, there are moments in there where the filmmaking kind of transcends and it, it's really something spectacular. And then there are moments like the scene where Josh Lucas blows himself up in the hallway and you're like, ah, this is a little corny. Yeah. Uh, but that's one of the things I like about the movie is yeah. how visually stunning it is and the editing and how he tries to incorporate the comic book panels into the movie. It's, it's ambitious. It's, mm-hmm. it's an interesting way to, you know, tell a story in a movie based on a comic book. Mm-hmm. Um, and hey, if Spider-Man had never existed, maybe this is what the MCU would look like. Just a lot of really weird panel-in-panel stuff. Maybe. And I, I can honestly say I would not mind it so much. Um, I, honestly, the only movie the MCU has put out that I can even compare this to, and I think this movie is far more successful and does it far better, is The Eternals, um, where you have kind of a... And, and I honestly, I think that movie is more hamstrung by the Marvel formula than not, because I think if that movie had been allowed to just be this, like, you know, people having these ethical conversations about the nature of immortality and what we should and should not do to help humanity with these gifts that we've been given, um, I, I would have fucking loved that. I would have eaten that up with a spoon, but we can't just do that because it's a Marvel movie. So we've got to have you know, the fighting and the quips and the, you know, a lot of that stuff. And I feel like that's where that movie kind of lost me. And ultimately it doesn't do either one particularly well. Uh, I just recently watched the Eternals for the first time, like three weeks ago. Um, So, Hey, Steven's finally made it to the conversation, everybody. Hey, just a couple yeah. of years late. Who fucking cares? Not yeah, we, stopped, me. We, we stopped having that conversation like a year ago, but that's fine. You made it. We got there. We landed I, the plane. But <laughs> instead of, you know, spinning it off into outer space, like that one guy in this movie. Yeah, that's what yeah. happens. Sam Elliott kills that guy. He dies in the vacuum of space because Hulk falls off his plane and Sam Elliott made him go too high. And so he leaves the Earth's atmosphere. And that is... Um, one of my greatest fears. It is completely unfounded. There's no way that will ever happen to me, but it is literally one of the things I am most afraid of in this world. Just suffocating the vacuum space? Just, no, hurtling off into nowhere, into the vacuum. Oh, gotcha, okay. Yeah. Like, um, one. speaking of comic books, one of my least favorite comic book deaths in all of comic books is Moriarty's death at the end of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Volume 1, where there's this... mineral that like makes you float and he like they they break it out of its case and it starts floating into the air so he grabs a hold of it and just floats into the sky and i just find the notion of that absolutely bone chilling i kind of do too but mainly only for the heights aspect because i hate heights oh no i also hate heights and that's part of it but not all of it so yeah sure so so yeah, there you go. But yeah, we did land that plane. Uh, and again, I, I think I, I saw some, sim- because again, Eternals looks pretty good. looks better than most MCU movies. Um, like there's some really stunning shots in there. The, the, the use of CGI is particularly good. And I think Chloe Zhao is really trying to do something different, but ultimately it's an MCU movie and no one's allowed to do anything that different. Uh, will we talk about Eternals on this podcast sometime in the future? 
That depends on what Kevin Feige's phase six announcement at D23 next month looks like. And based on maybe a potential leak by Patton Oswalt in an interview, there might be an eternal sequel coming. Okay. All right. I, again, I don't know who's asking for that. The The only movie that grossed less than Eternals at the box office is the movie we're covering next week. So, Well, as I've told you off, Mike, that doesn't matter to the MCU anymore. It doesn't necessarily care. It did for next office. It did for next week's movie. It's It was the third movie in phase one. Of Second. course it mattered. Whatever. Of course it mattered. Because like, it's trying to get off the ground. It's second movie makes my argument even better. Uh, like, well, you're welcome then. <laughs> thank you. Now, maybe I should amend that. Now, the MCU doesn't care about box office. If Kevin right. Feige needs an Eternals two to tell the story he wants to tell, he's making an Eternals two. And and that's and that I, Feige is now powerful enough that he can do whatever the hell he and he knows it too. Like there is no no one was asking for an Eternals movie, literally no one. And he's yeah. like, you know what, losers. You're going to you're going to take it and you're going to like it. And even if you don't like it, you're going to like it. You're at least going to pay me a shit ton of money to go to the theaters and watch it because I'm going to tie five other movies to this one. And you're not going to know what the hell's going on until you watch this. Yep. Welcome to the MCU, everybody. Shut up and take my money, Papa Feige. Shut up and (laughs) take my money. Whatever you say, Mr. Feige. Here's my money, Mr. Feige. Thank you, Mr. Feige. Yes, sir. Mr. Feige, sir. Thank you, Mr. Feige, sir. Thank you. May I have another Mr. Feige, sir? Um, yeah, but again, we'll, we'll talk so much more about the MCU next week, including MCU fatigue. Uh, I will talk about that at least Brett probably yeah, or lack thereof. Yeah. Right. Right. In your case, lack thereof for sure. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so let's, I guess, um, I do want to, I do want to shout out Sam Elliott, who's really fucking great in this movie. Like, yes, he was a bit of a B I T C H when it came to power the dog. Um, but he's really good in this movie. Like I, I mad respect Sam Elliott. Like, he is, I think, the platonic ideal of what Thunderbolt Ross is. Like, I love what the Big Hurt is doing in the MCU. But, like, when I see a picture of Thunderbolt Ross in the comics, it's it's Sam Elliott's face staring back at me. And I think he's just absolutely phenomenal as his character. Yeah, I mean, it's just because it's Sam Elliott, right? Like, I right. Love, you, you gotta love his performance here. But at the same time, I prefer a portrayal more like the MCU version. Because this guy's just a straight-up fucking villain. Yeah, like he's, he has as, no nuance as he is in the comics too. So, well, but I, a little more nuance maybe is a little bit better. Like, you also have a lot more than two and a quarter hours to tell the story. Well, sure, but at the same time, he had more nuance in the original Hulk. The, well, the original, the Incredible Hulk movie. He had more nuance in that movie. He wasn't as like he was a dick for a lot of it, but there was still more nuance to him in the incredible that wasn't this one we can talk opinion. about that later we can we can we certainly can uh but we'll, we'll have we'll, we'll we'll do an entire thunderbolt ross corner how's that i mean i don't know if i got that much to say about it yes right. you do <laughs> okay i pretty much said everything i wanted to say about it just now but all right sure we'll, we can we'll, revisit. we'll revisit um <laughs> I might have more to say and that might, that might inspire you to say other things. So, okay, sure. Maybe we'll see. And I, I haven't rewatched the incredible Hulk since the last time I watched through everything in the MCU, which it's been a while. So yeah, luckily I've watched it within the last month. So I'm good. Well, good for you. Yeah. (laughs) 
Um, so let's go ahead and hit the box office. So incredible, or I'm sorry, incredible Hulk. Hulk opens at number one on June 20th, 2003. Uh, it opens to $81.745 million. Um, and number two in its fourth week down from number one, the week before it's finding Nemo. Uh, which has grossed uh, over 240 million in four weeks. Uh, after that is Too Fast, Too Furious, which has grossed 107.77 million dollars in three weeks. Uh, Bruce Almighty is in fourth place. After five weeks, it's at 215.1 million dollars. And finally, in fifth, in the fifth spot, uh, past episode of this podcast. Go check it out. The F. Gary Gray version of the Italian Job which in four weeks has grossed $71.3 million. Uh, rounding out the top 10, you've got Rugrats Go Wild, future episode of Unenfranchised there, ending two different film franchises. Uh, something called Alex and Emma, which I've never heard of. Uh, Hollywood Homicide, what if we teamed up uh, Harrison Ford and Josh Hartnett. Uh, in ninth place, Dumb and Dumberer, When Harry Met Lloyd, which has dropped from fifth place to ninth place on its way to the bottom only grossing 22.5 million so far. And finally in 10th place after seven weeks, the matrix reloaded. What a mostly iconic box office. Yeah. There's some, there's some really, I mean, and then in 11th place from Justin to Kelly, the chance to try to capitalize on American Idol success. Uh, and uh, in 12th place, X-Men or X2 X-Men United, the best of the X-Men films. Well, what do you know? What do you know? And what a uh, time to be alive that was. Right. Um, so uh Hulk ultimately, so it grosses in its first weekend uh 81.75, as we said before. Uh that is its opening weekend. Its total domestic box is hundred and thirty-two point two million dollars. Uh, and then you also get uh in the international box office. You get another 112.8 or 0.9 million, which brings us to about 245 million worldwide. Um, so not a great multiplier there. Um, and again, that's ultimately why these these sequels fail to materialize in many of these instances. This is not the last early 2000s Marvel superhero movie that we will discuss on this podcast either. Like we have many more to come. Um, but you know, this is kind of emblematic of a lot of the movies that come out of this era that they're ultimately trying to be, you know, they're, they're trying to kickstart their own individual franchises. Um, I mean, we didn't really get into the whole Marvel declaring bankruptcy and selling off all their characters for cheap, uh, aspect of this either, but that's why, I mean, it doesn't really factor here because Universal had apparently held the Hulk rights for a while, but. Yeah, well, I mean, we can also talk about that next week. This is a two-parter, after all. Two-parter! Gee, I wonder what we're covering next week. Hmm. Who knows? Uh, it's a mystery. No one knows. Even even the most astute listeners will not have figured that out by now. Um, the Tomatometer score on this one is a 62% fresh. Uh, while Ang Lee's ambitious film earns marks for style and an attempt at dramatic depth, there's ultimately too much talking and not enough smashing. Um and maybe we'll, maybe we'll see a response to that next week. Who knows? Not me. Um, 
And uh, the Metascore on this one is 54 based on mixed or average reviews from 40 critics. And the Letterbox score is a 2.3. Brett out of five stars. How do you, my friend, rank Hulk? Pretty much right there in the average, a 2.5. Uh, whereas I, uh, and I know this is going to come as a surprise to many of you, I gave, it, I gave it four stars because uh, this movie slaps. What? Four stars? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I um, didn't know that. <laughs> how could you have possibly known? Um, but yeah, no, I, I think this movie is great. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun and I had a lot of fun with it. So yeah, there you go. And uh, this is, as Brett mentioned, part one of our Hulkamania two-parter. So join us next week as Hulkamania continues to run wild up on you, brother, sister, and non-binary sibling. Um, for for our part, this is the Disenfranchised Podcast. You can uh, find us on social medias, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Facebook at DisenfranchPod. Let us know how we're doing, DisenfranchPod at gmail.com. Let us know if there's a failed franchise starter you want to see us cover, and hey, we might even do it. You never know. Thank you to everybody who's listened to the Jetsons uh, Jetsons the Movie episode and made it our number one most downloaded episode of all time. <laughs> By a wide margin. By a huge margin in just two weeks. So thank you for for all the nostalgia buffs and Hanna-Barbera fans that are that are tackling that one for us. Uh, and, and the memes. You, you got to do it for the memes. Something, and which honestly is the reason why we did it in the first place. And I can't say that was a bad call on either of our parts, Brett. Like we are, we are two, uh, two podcasting geniuses up in here, up in here. Mm, I, no, I didn't. I, I, that was, that was halfway out of my mouth. And I was like, that's not true. That's a lie. Yeah. Now you're just lying to your audience, Steven. How yeah. dare you? We never do that. No, we, why would we? Um, what, what have we to gain from that, Brett? True. Um, so, uh, so yeah, no, we, uh, uh and additionally, um, please, 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 uh, check us out, um, on Spotify, Apple podcasts, uh, and, and please give us a nice juicy five-star rating and review. We, we really do appreciate those. Um, and, and we really could use your help in, and kind of boosting our, boosting our numbers. The, the, the better we do. Uh, on those, the, the, the more likely we are to get more listeners like yourself. So if everybody who, and again, it does the review doesn't even have to be that deep. It could just be like me, like podcast, podcast, good. Uh, it doesn't even have to be, you know, a coherent sentence. It could just be a jumble of, you could just smash your hand on the keyboard a few times. Um, that works like five stars and, and some kind of review that really does help us to get more listeners. And, and we like listeners. Listeners are fun. So, so thank you. Thank you for that. And, and for coming back week after week to listen to us prattle on about movies that you may or may not enjoy uh, movies that we may or may not enjoy, quite frankly. Uh, and Hey, if you're looking to support uh, the podcast monetarily, we sure would appreciate that as well. Uh, Patreon.com slash disenfranch pod uh, at the beginning of every month, you'll get to see everything we're planning on covering throughout the entire month. So who knew about this Hulkamania two-parter? Our patrons, they knew about it first and foremost. And if you want to know about it too, you can literally join at any level, patreon.com slash disenfranchpod. Uh, I'm your host, Stephen Foxworthy. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd at Chewy Walrus. Brett, what about you? Where can we find you on socials these days? Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Letterboxd at sus underscore warlock. Fantastic. And that is the end of part one of our Hulkamania 
uh, two-parter. Tune in next week where we talk about the Hulk Hogan vehicle, Suburban Commando. I know oh we've, we've been teasing it all episode, so I really hope you guys are excited to hear us talk about Suburban Commando next week. Um, Subverting those expectations. Hey! Um, at any rate, uh, again, I am your host, Stephen Foxworthy. Uh, for my co-host, Brett Wright, and myself... Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Damn it, Brett. <laughs> Thank you.